Today's reading is from James, his first chapter, verses 1 through 4. Listen to God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jerry. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me for just a moment? Lord God, your word is true and helpful and strong and powerful. And we want to be reflections of the truth of your word in our lives. We want to live out the truth and be wise and powerful and overcome difficulties and honor you in all things. So we pray now that this time that we set aside in our worship to consider your word might be beneficial to us and honoring to you. May your spirit be at work in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, it's called slacktivism. You ever heard of that? Slacktivism. It's it's a growing trend among many social media platforms where you're able to support a worthy cause without actually advancing the mission of that cause in any significant way. They call it slacktivism because it's a combination of two words that usually don't go go together. Slacker and activist. You don't think of those two together because they usually don't go together. But it's possible to be a slacktivist today, to sit in the comfort of your chair or maybe to be at a Starbucks enjoying a latte and surfing the web. And you you come across a Facebook page dedicated to a worthy cause and you can like that page and let everybody know, all of your friends know that you support this worthy cause. Or you can sign an online petition. Maybe against something like child trafficking. Or you can forward an email to raise awareness for the inhumane treatment of animals. Or you can tweet or retweet a provocative quote about economic injustice. And as you do these sorts of things, it delivers an emotion of self-satisfaction. Like you were part of something bigger, that you did something without actually doing much of anything, really, when you think about it. See, uh, when you're a slacktivist, you don't have to attend a rally. You don't have to pick up a sign and march on Washington. You don't have to make a donation. You just make a click and you've done your part. You've changed the world. But the reality is, slacktivists don't change the world. Not much anyway. In fact, in 2014, researchers at the University of North Carolina did some follow-up research on a particular Facebook page that was very popular called Save Darfur, which uh, expressed a desire to bring an end to the horrible human rights abuses taking place in the Western Sudan at that time. Nearly 1.17 million people signed up or liked this Facebook page, Saved Our Fur, declaring their desire to bring an end to the terrible things that were happening there. But with the follow-up research, they found that of the 1.17 million who signed up, 99.8% did nothing beyond that. No funds were given. No ongoing support efforts were made. Nothing beyond just 
liking the page and expressing your desire to make a difference in Darfur. That's slacktivism. And in some ways, you know, it's understandable these days because social media has made it possible for you and I to be exposed to such a wide range of worthy causes and, and problems in our world. And who has all the time and the energy and the financial resources to invest in all of them? Frankly, adding my name to a petition to end suffering in Darfur seems a lot better than doing nothing at all. But you wonder, does it make a difference? It's not to say also that, that, that some of these social media campaigns don't make a difference. I mean, remember the ice bucket challenge of a few years ago that raised over $220 million for ALS research, Lou Gehrig's disease? So if social media is used properly by organizations that know how to use it, it can make a difference. But here's the danger I want us to see in all this. And this is why I bring up this whole issue of slacktivism. We all have this natural human tendency to default to whatever is quick and easy. To do just enough to feel like we've done something. And sometimes when we do that, we can fool ourselves into thinking we're more committed than we actually are. That we're more noble, more caring, more giving, more devoted than we actually are. Or that we're having a greater impact than we actually are. And the reason why this is important, friends, is because as Christians... We can drift toward a Christian version of slacktivism. I mean, think about this. We're living in America today. And in America today, depending on what research poll you look at, anywhere from 71% to 83% of Americans self-identify as Christians. They have some kind of positive opinion about God or the Bible or Jesus. And people will describe themselves as Christians in a variety of ways. They'll say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious, whatever that means. They'll express that, you know, I'm a loving person. I I try to follow Jesus. Or I, I try to basically be a good person. But see, if we never really examine the criteria for being a Christian, we can just identify as Christians without really coming to terms with the claims that Christianity makes on our lives. I mean, Jesus makes it clear, the Bible makes it plain that what reveals the true nature of a Christian and the true nature of a heart is not just what we say we believe, but how we actually behave based on what we believe. Hey, it's great to affirm our faith with words, isn't it? Great to affirm our faith with words, but it's very important to confirm our faith with action. Otherwise, we drift towards slacktivism. So welcome to a new series we're launching this morning called Building a Faith That Works. And it's going to be based on this New Testament book of James, a a book in the Bible that is one of the most practical and relevant books. For the next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to focus our time and attention during the sermon time on a study of this wonderfully practical, helpful book. This is going to be more of a Bible study time than it is a, a sermon time. But the book of James has a lot to teach us and a lot to to say to us about what it means to be a Christian in modern day America. See, James confronts you and me with this fundamental question, which is this. Do your deeds match your creeds? Does your walk match your talk? Do you truly live what you say you believe? Because, you know, there's really two categories of belief. 
Uh, one category of belief is what we would call opinion. And we hold lots of different opinions. Opinions are typically the kind of the superficial beliefs we have that, that don't go very deep into the heart or the soul. I can have an opinion. I can believe a lot of things, right? I, I can have an opinion about UFOs. I can have an opinion about who should be the next president. I can have an opinion about the best kind of music or the, the best coffee to get in Stafford, right? We all have various opinions that we hold and they're kind of superficial beliefs. But then there's these things called convictions. That's the second category of belief. A conviction is different than an opinion. A conviction goes deep into who we are. It's the fundamental basis of our identity and how we live and how we behave. You know the difference between an opinion and a conviction? It's simply this. An opinion is something you hold, but a conviction is something that holds you. A conviction is something you believe so deeply that it affects how you behave even when it's inconvenient, even when it's difficult. It affects your life and how you treat other people, how you live out your life in spite of circumstances and regardless of consequences. And what, what James is all about is when, when the Bible talks about belief and when the Bible talks about believing in Jesus, it's talking about convictions, not opinions. See, I can believe that it's good to forgive other people. But if that's an opinion rather than a conviction, then when somebody really deeply hurts me, I'll hold a grudge. I, I won't go to them and try to reconcile and work things out. I'll put them on my enemies list and I'll say little subtle things to them and I'll, I'll look for ways to get even with them and if something bad happens to them in my heart I'll secretly like the fact that something happened to them that God got them back right I won't do the hard work necessary for forgiveness if it's just an opinion and not a conviction I can have a belief that God wants me to have a generous and giving heart and honor Him with my finances. But listen, if it's an opinion rather than a conviction, then I can give you dozens of reasons why I can't tithe, and why tithing is not a good idea for me right now. I can believe that God calls me to a life of sexual purity. But if that's an opinion rather than a conviction, then I'll go to websites I shouldn't go to, and I'll go see movies I shouldn't see, and, and I'll begin to treat women as objects of desire rather than as human beings created in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect. You see, there's a world of difference in an opinion and a conviction. And James is reminding us that when it comes to, to life, we must live by conviction. When the Bible calls us to believe, it's calling to live on the level of conviction. Otherwise, we just drift toward slacktivism. And so, the New Testament book of James invites us to live a new life. So we're going to study the book of James. I'd encourage you to bring your Bibles uh, as you come to church each week as we study this. Because you're going to want to follow along. It's Like I say, this is going to be more of a Bible study. So bring your Bibles and follow along. And uh, I'd encourage you to bring a notebook too so you can write down things. If if you hear something that you feel like the Holy Spirit is communicating to you, write it down. Here, here's the truth. You know, Amy did such a great job earlier of talking about how when you sing it activates different parts of your brain. The same is true when you write things down. See, you can, I come across people who say, I just like to sit and listen to the sermon. Well, okay. You'll leave here in 48 hours. You'll forget just about everything you've heard. But if you sit and you reflect and you write down things that you sense the Holy Spirit is saying, look, it's not because everything I say is so profound you need to write it down. We know better than that, right? But here's the deal. If this is the Word of God, and if the Word of God is used by the Holy Spirit through proclamation and instruction 
to speak to your heart. Don't you want to write something down so you can pray about it, reflect on it, share it with your small group? I think you do. So bring a notebook and take notes. Most of the notes today are in the sermon notes section of your bulletin, so you can follow along there. But I'd encourage you, bring your Bible, bring a notebook, follow along. It'll engage a whole new part of your brain. It'll help you have a better grasp and appreciation for the Scriptures. So with that in mind, let's dive in this morning. We're going to start by looking at James chapter 1, verse 1. So if you have your Bible, turn to James. James is in the New Testament. It's right after Hebrews, and it's a couple books before you get to the Revelation. So it's near the back of your Bible. And by the way, we call it the book of James, but it's really a letter. It's a letter. And uh, in fact, much of the New Testament is uh, letters. They're letters written by various people to various congregations or various individuals. In fact, uh, the more biblical name for these letters are epistles. You ever heard that epistle? An epistle is not the wife of an apostle. An epistle is a letter written in the Bible. And so uh, we have this epistle of James. And in chapter 1, verse 1, we begin looking at this. This begins like many uh, epistles. This is written probably around the end of the first century, maybe the beginning of the second century. And so you get a real good glimpse of what the early church was like and what the early Christian leaders were like. And this letter follows a similar format to many letters that uh, have been discovered around that time, that era in the Roman Empire. They always begin with an opening salutation. And the salutation always tells you who the, who the letter is from and who the letter is for. Notice here in, in uh, chapter 1, the letter of James is written by a guy named James. How about that? You're all Bible scholars now, right? Written by James. Now, in the, in the New Testament, there's lots of different Jameses. Have you noticed? One of the reasons the Bible can be difficult to understand sometimes is because there's so many Jameses and Josephs and Simons and all these names that get repeated. In fact, uh, there were several different Jameses in the New Testament. Two of Jesus' twelve disciples were named James. There was James the son of Alphaeus, James the son of Zebedee. This James is neither of them. This is a third James. This is James who happens to be the half-brother of Jesus. Did you know Jesus had brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters? He did, and James was one of them. There are several of them, and they're listed in the, in the Gospels. Uh, but what you find when you read through the Gospels is that James was skeptical of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. James could see that Jesus, his half-brother, was a gifted teacher and a miracle worker, but the Son of God, the Messiah, James was skeptical. And then after the resurrection, James becomes a follower of Jesus, a leader in the early church. In fact, James was the primary leader in the first church of Jerusalem. He was like the senior pastor of the first Jerusalem church. What would cause somebody a little bit skeptical of Jesus to become a wholehearted follower, devoted senior pastor of the first Christian church of Jerusalem? What would cause such a 180 degree turn? Well, the Bible tells us. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says that James was an eyewitness of the resurrection. There's something about seeing Jesus resurrected face to face that's going to change your heart and your life. And it changed James. James became a devout and holy man. In fact, he had a nickname. You know what his nickname was? It was Camel Knees. Because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer, his knees grew callous. And so, when people would see James walking by, hey, there goes old Camel Knees. That was his nickname. Because he was so devout and so holy. He was 
the brother, half-brother of the Lord Jesus, eyewitness to the resurrection, first pastor, senior pastor of the first Christian church in Jerusalem. But notice how he identifies himself here in chapter 1, verse 1. He doesn't use any of those titles. He just says, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is important for us to remember, friends. That no matter what's your status, no matter what's your title, no matter what's your background, our fundamental calling, our fundamental identity is to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Hey, come on, come on. We live in Stafford, right? Lots of military, government, corporate types, right? We live in a world where rank and status and title and pay grade and educational level is all part of the source of identity. James reminds us, if you're going to follow Jesus, all that stuff may be well and good, but your fundamental identity is to serve. To be a servant of the Lord. Right? Hey, i got good news for you. You don't have to sell everything, pack up and ship off to Africa in order to serve the Lord. Wherever you're at, whatever sphere of influence you have, wherever the Lord has put you right now, that's your opportunity to be a humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Using whatever gifts, talents, skills, status, rank, ability God has given you, not to get more for yourself, but to give more to others. Because that's what it means to be a servant. Amen? So notice that first part of the salutation. Notice the second part then, and still in verse 1, he says, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. That's a reference to the, the Jewish Christians. Remember, Christianity grew out of Judaism. All the first Christians were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. His twelve disciples were Jewish. All the first original converts were all Jewish. The church in Jerusalem was made up of all Jews who were convinced that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. They were eyewitnesses to His resurrection and they had received the Holy Spirit. But but as Christianity began to grow, it would go to different locations and the gospel, the good news of Jesus, would spread first among the Jews. In fact, the Apostle Paul would go to various Jewish synagogues and he would explain how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Messiah. So the early churches in the Roman Empire, scattered all over the place, were primarily Jewish Christians. And that reference to 12 tribes is important because the the nation of Israel, the Jews, traced their lineage to one of 12 different tribes, the great-grandsons of Abraham, their father. You ever notice in the Bible all those weird genealogies like so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so? You find them several places in the Bible. That's because for the Jews... Who your granddaddy was, who your great-great-granddaddy was, how you traced your lineage was very important. You you had to be descended from one of the twelve original tribes of Israel. And so this is just a a reference to that, that you're still Jewish, but now you're a Christ follower. You're you're fulfilled. There's a reason why Jesus had twelve disciples. To match the twelve tribes of Israel as a way of saying, I'm starting the new people of God. And now you get to be part of it. See, our earliest Christian forefathers were Jewish. And they were scattered around. And so what James is doing in this letter, this would have been common in those days. Uh, He would make several copies of his letter or allow his letter to be copied and they would be sent via messenger to these different churches in these different locations where they would be read during worship. And they would be taught to the people. So now that we know who the letter is from and who the letter is to, Let's just take a moment. We don't have a lot of time, but let's take a moment to look here in verses 2 through 4 because this is a theme we find several places in Scripture. I'm going to read it out loud and you can follow along in your Scriptures or uh, just listen carefully. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, 
Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. We find this over and over again in James and over and over again in the Bible. This idea of persevering under trial. Enduring hard times, but not just enduring hard times. It's having this character quality of grit, resilience, determination that allows us to endure hardship without sacrificing our convictions. Without denying what is truly and deeply most important. See, there's going to be times in your life and my life when we go through trials. Isn't that true? I read the prayer requests. I know. I pray for you. I know what some of you are going through. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when we go through trials. Life will test you. There will be trials. And your faith will be tested. Your convictions will be tested. But here's the deal. Here's what James is saying. The purpose of the testing is to strengthen you. To mature you. To make you stronger, wiser, better. In fact, uh, the Greek word that he uses here for perseverance. Interesting Greek word. You know, the, the, much of the New Testament was written in the original Greek. And the, the word used here is the word hupomone in the Greek, which is an interesting word. It, it describes not just the ability to endure hardship, but to rise above hardship, to take wise and positive action in the midst of hardship, to turn your trials into triumph, to be a victor rather than a victim. Come on, don't you know people? Don't you know people that when they go through hard times, they start making a series of stupid decisions and choices that just make it worse? You, you ever met someone like that? Yeah? Some of you are nudging each other. I don't know what that means. <laughs> James says there's another way to live. When you're going through trials, choose instead to make the good, wise, healthy decisions. So God can work in and through that to make you mature, to help you get stronger and better. Right? See, that's hupomone, making the wise decisions in the midst of difficulty. It's not just a passive acceptance of bad circumstances. It's an ability to, to work with God to transform those circumstances. I love the old story about when Billy Graham and Joel Osteen and Rick Warren all died at the same time and got to the pearly gates of heaven. And St. Peter greets them there. He says, fellas, I knew you were coming, but a different timeline. I thought you were coming about six months from now. Your mansions aren't completed yet. We don't have room for you here. We're going to have to send you down to the other place for about six months. Then, then when your mansions on, we'll, we'll call you back up. And, and so they, they go. Billy Graham, Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, they all go to hell where they're going to spend six months until their mansions are finished in heaven. But after only about a week, the devil calls St. Peter on the phone long distance. And he says, hey, you got to get these guys out of here. They're ruining the place. And St. Peter says, well, it's going to be six months. Tell me what's going on. He said, well, you're not going to believe this, but Billy Graham's been preaching the gospel. He's got everybody saved. And Joel Osteen's got everybody smiling and singing and thinking positive. And he said, and Rick Warren, he's raised enough money to get the place air conditioned. <laughs> that's hupomone. That's perseverance. That's finding yourself in difficult circumstances. And instead of shaking your fist and yelling, why me, God? You fall to your knees and you say, how are you going to use me, God? Right? See, if your goal and my goal in life is comfort and security and ease, then any trial that comes along becomes a reason to curse and get frustrated and angry. If, if, if the goal in life is comfort, security, and ease. But what if the goal for the Christ follower is maturity and strength 
and power and wisdom, then any trial that comes along is actually something that God will use to make us stronger, wiser, more powerful. See? It's all about what matters to you. It's all about where your convictions lie. About what life is really all about. See, if you just got an opinion about God and Jesus and Christianity, then your trials are going to be reason to curse and fume and carry on. If you have a conviction about the goodness of God and His wisdom and His power and our calling to persevere, then when we go through trials, we'll see it much differently. Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle with this. It's easy for me to preach this. It's probably easy for you to hear some of this and we can nod our heads and say, Amen, that's true. Trials are meant to help us grow stronger in our faith and teach us wisdom. Yes, all that's true. But then to go out and live that is hard, isn't it? It is for me. Did you, did you see last Sunday night after the Super Bowl? Now, full disclosure, I didn't, I was asleep at halftime. I, I, I wasn't feeling well, I just went to bed. But the next morning I got up and uh, I, I saw this uh, post-game press conference by Cam Newton. Did you see this? You know, Cam had just lost the game, and there's a tradition after the Super Bowl, the quarterbacks go out and they they grant an interview to the press, and both the winning and the losing quarterback have to do that. And so Cam goes out there for his press conference, and he's noticeably disappointed, frustrated, angry maybe, and uh, wasn't much of a press conference. I watched it the next day on video, and uh, just kind of gave quick one-word mumbling answers, and then finally he got disgusted with the whole thing, and he got up and he stormed off. And when I saw that video, I thought to myself, poor Cam, what a baby. I mean, acting like a petulant little child. I mean, there you are, one of the the wealthiest men in the world, a multimillionaire, good-looking superstar, MVP of the season. You have a bad game. You're now the second-best football team in America. Got the world by the tail. Every reason to go out there and be mature, and this is how you act. What a child. And I was going to blog that. (laughs) I was feeling good about myself. Because I got to bust on Cam Newton. And then, before I could get to my keyboard, the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit sometimes does, spoke to my heart. And said, Mark, you, you, you you can get on your high horse and lecture Cam Newton all you want. But you start to think about how you act. When you have things that happen in your life that are disappointing and frustrating and irritating, you, Pastor Miller, every reason to understand the trials and challenges of life come to make us stronger. You, the guy with the education, the guy with a healthy family with a roof over your head and plenty of food to eat and clothing on your back. You living in the land of the free and the home of the brave. You, the pastor of the best doggone Methodist church in Virginia. And here you are when things don't go your way and you get a little frustrated and irritated. You're whining and grumbling and complaining. You're every bit like Cam Newton. And I had to admit, the Spirit was right. Can you relate to that a little? See, this is the truth. This stuff is great in theory. It's really hard in practice. And so the book of James comes along to offer us helpful insights in how we see the trials and circumstances of our lives differently. And and just before we wrap up, look, look there at verse 2, the first word, consider. You, some of you, depending on your translation, may say count. Count it all joy. Consider it pure joy when you go through trials. James is not saying your trials are joy. He's saying consider it joy. He's saying treat it like it's joy. He's saying interpret it as joy. See, it's all about how we interpret our circumstances. There's the event or the circumstance, and then there's how we choose to interpret that. 
And what James is telling us is how you choose to interpret your circumstances will determine how well you can persevere in the midst of those circumstances. And James is saying, have the convictions to interpret your circumstances in light of what God's Word says about who you are, who God is, and what God is trying to accomplish in your life. Can I get an amen on that? He's saying, consider it joy. This is not to trivialize or to minimize the pain and sorrow of life. It's to contextualize all of it. Because the purpose of life is for you and me to be humble servants of the living Lord, to give glory to Him every day, to treat our circumstances, our struggles, our difficulties as opportunities to get stronger, better, wiser, more mature. In light of God's promises, in light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, in light of the wisdom of God's Word, we have every reason to consider it joy when we encounter various trials of many kinds. Because this testing of our faith produces perseverance, makes us mature and complete. We'll talk more about this next week, but as we wrap up, here's your homework. Yes, we're the church that gives you homework. So, so uh, in your uh, bulletin, you'll find uh, in the sermon notes, if you want to do your homework, a couple things we're going to ask you to do. First of all, read through the entire epistle of James this week. It's only five chapters. You get through it. Consider it pure joy when you sit to read. Right? <laughs> read through the epistle of James and take notes on what you're reading because the Lord will speak to you about certain things. So you want to write that. If you have questions, if you read something you don't understand, you have questions, uh, email Mark uh, Montgomery and ask him. <laughs> Or me, either one. We'll both, we'll both answer. Uh, also, uh, do this. As you go through this week, anything that frustrates you, irritates you, challenges you, disappoints you, uh, stop for a second. Take a breath. And just remind yourself, consider it joy. And say, God, thank you for this. It, it's painful to go through. It's frustrating to go through. It's irritating to go through. But I believe you're going to use this for good in my life, to make me stronger and wiser and better. So next time you're stuck in traffic, consider it joy. Uh, okay, <laughs> try. Irritated with a coworker, consider it joy. Something happens at work you don't like, consider it joy. Kids and spouse frustrating you, consider it joy. Didn't do well in the algebra test. Study harder, but consider it joy, right? God can use all of these things to mature and perfect us and make us better. And when you start doing this, you're going to have amazing stories to tell people in your small group or tell your family of the ways in which God took your circumstances and did something great in you, through you, and to you and made you a blessing to others. Don't be a slacktivist. Live out your faith. It's a conviction, not an opinion.